0: Well, good morning, <clears throat> it's been so wonderful to worship with you this morning and to have that time of, of prayer as the Lord's people, and I thank you for the opportunity to be able to, uh, to fellowship with you together, um, we just, we love Redeemer Church, and we are so grateful for the testimony that the Lord has raised up here. I would like to pray again, if it's all right, just to ask for the illumination of the Spirit. Father, we ask now that you would, by your power and for your glory, grant me utterance. The gifts that you've given to me are yours, and only you, Lord, can work in and through them so that I might speak the very words of God. I pray, Father, that you would minister uh, through this servant, though I am an unworthy one. And Lord, I ask that you would illuminate our hearts. We know that you are speaking to your church. Lord, you know that there are distractions in our minds and our our uh, we are tempted to wander in our thoughts. We pray that you would draw our attention now to Jesus Christ, to his word, the word of Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, minister the Word specifically, um, very precisely to the needs that are in each life and each family. And so we pray that you would be glorified through the preaching of the Word. We pray it in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. <clears throat> the Bible is the greatest literature of all. And if you have your Bible, turn to uh, Job chapter 38. There are are other books of great literature, though. And during the time that I was preaching through Job, especially as I was uh, looking at these creation passages where the Lord is uh, expositing creation to Job and what it means in chapters 38 through 42, I was reading Paradise Lost by John Milton. Uh, I've read it before, and I didn't get through it. I, I just read portions of it. Uh, it's, it's rich, rich, but it's a slow reading. But I think it is a great encouragement because Paradise Lost is a theodicy. Now, a theodicy is a defense of God. And specifically, Milton was writing... To defend the providence of God. What is the providence of God? It is that mysterious way that God's sovereignty works in the world. When Milton writes, he defines the universe and man from God's perspective. God is the ultimate point of reference for Milton. The compass of life is the scripture. True north points to the son of God. And his book corrects the perspective that man is at the center of reality, and that the mind of man is the criterion of truth, and that man is autonomous and independent of God. False assumptions that are all through the unsaved world. But in Job 38, in an infinitely greater way than John Milton could ever do, God speaks and he changes the perspective of Job regarding his life and circumstances. And God does this same work in us through regeneration, that renovation of our whole nature, that renewal of our mind, that imparting of the Spirit of God to us that takes place, when, that we refer to as being born again, through regeneration, through the work of sanctification, God works a kind of Copernican revolution in our thinking. His spirit reorients the center of our thinking from self to God. The Lord confronts our false interpretations of reality and he transforms our worldview. Now worldviews are about our assumptions. They are the fundamental orientation of our heart that determines how we interpret and explain life. Suffering and trials are God's school of transformation. So, for instance, when we are depressed, when we're frustrated, when we're angered by people, by the government, by circumstances, by bad drivers, by contractors, by doctors, by vendors, by relatives, right? Those who block our goals and introduce chaos into our lives. That anger, that frustration is actually due to a false assumption about life and reality. Yeah. Because this is not your world. Your plan is not God's plan. You and I are not God. God arranges your circumstances He intends to block your way. He intends to force you toward Himself. And until we surrender our false view of life, until we abandon our independence and recognize that we are created by God, that we were created for God's glory, that He directs in His life, by His providence in our lives, He is directing things so that we will continually run into the wall of His majesty until we recognize that He is all. He is everything. And that my life needs to be oriented to Him. And in that humility, we we learn how to walk in this world. Now, before we go any further, let's read this passage, uh, just the two verses here in Job 38 Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So here, Job sees God. And the encounter with this self revelation as the creator, the sustainer, transforms Job's perspective. Because knowing God is the foundation for a confidence in his wisdom and his goodness in all of life. Let's go to the next slide. Now the storm that Elihu had been describing in the previous chapters has finally broke. And God is speaking to Job out of the storm. The answer to Job's problems... It's not an explanation about God. It shouldn't surprise us that when we get to this chapter, we don't find God with his hat in his hand saying, look, Job, look, I know it's been tough, but... Let me just explain to you some of the things that were going on here in heaven. Did you know that Satan was up here and, and that, he, that I pointed out what a, a righteous servant you are and and he challenged that and, and said that you would uh, uh, apostatize and turn from your faith and I said oh no you won't and and you see this has all been going on here and, and this is proving the glory of my redemption in your life and a witness to the, the cosmic beings that are around here and he... You know, we would, we would say, is this really God trying to give... Right? It, it totally doesn't fit, but what is here completely fits, right? Yeah. Yeah. What is here is God asserting his godness, right. asserting his glory. And so the answer to Job's problem was not an explanation about God. The three friends had failed to represent God well. Their explanations about God and and what he was doing totally misrepresented him. Something they will be called to repent of in the final chapter. But Job doesn't need an explanation. He needs a revelation of God. You see, knowing who God is is better than knowing why he is doing the things that he is doing. When you know who God is, You know that you can trust Him. You know that even if you don't have an explanation that His goodness and His wisdom, His faithfulness is at work in all of life. Some of you, I know, read through the book and you would have to be paying very close attention to notice that He speaks of Himself as the Lord here in chapter 38. And it's the first time since chapter 1 there's a possible Reference in chapter 12, but here is the covenant name of God. It's the first time since chapter 1, the Lord is speaking. Now listen, we want to know who this is. Not a created angel, but the eternal word himself, the second person of the Trinity. For it is he who made the world's. This was none other than the Son of God. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who is speaking to Job. You recognize that the the function of the second person of the Trinity is to mediate the glory of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God, the wisdom of God. All of these things are mediated to us. All the promises of God, everything that comes to us from God, comes to us through the person of his son. He is always the mediator. When you have God speaking to people in the Old Testament, he speaks through his son. When there is some being that is addressing, such as the angel of the Lord, passages in scripture, it is God is always mediating through his Son. And it is the Lord Jesus himself who is speaking. This is the same person who would later speak to Moses and Israel on Mount Sinai. It, this is the same person who would speak on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. Now, while Job wanted a detailed explanation from God regarding his suffering, what he really needed was the vision of God himself. When we know, who God is, and know God as He is, that He is glorious, that He is exalted, that He is sovereign, that He is good in His very being, then explanations are unnecessary. One writer says, seeing God, Job forgets all he wanted to say, all he thought that he would say. Now, we prefer that God speak to us in the sunshine, there are the ordinary means of grace that Ryan mentioned in his prayer. But the fact is, is that God often speaks to us through the storm. And Job's life had been a storm. Now God speaks out of a, a literal storm, as it were. But God speaks through suffering. God, he works in our lives through suffering. It is the alien work God, the strange work of God. I'm referring to Isaiah 28. In Isaiah 28, God tells the prophet that he is going to do a work in their day, a strange work that he is going to do that no one will believe. It'll be absolutely amazing. He's talking about the fact that he is going to use uh, Babylon, he is going to use Assyria He's going to use these nations to come in to discipline his people and that he is going to put them through suffering in order that he might sift his people so that the faithful remnant might be brought to himself and and be faithful to himself. And suffering is the strange work of God, that God works by this very means, And, and so here Represented in the fierceness. And the the terrifying nature of the storm. And those of you that have been in terrifying storms. You know they, they suddenly make us feel our smallness. We back up from those. Listen that's what suffering is supposed to do. It is the tool of God. In this fallen world. It is the school of transformation. And so he is. Speaking to him out of the storm, Job is overwhelmed by the glory of God, and that is as it should be. This is why worship is so important, because it brings us to that place of humility before the greatness and glory and majesty of God, so that we will listen, so that we will humble ourselves. Like Asaph in Psalm 73, Job had drawn some false conclusions about God false conclusions about life and God is about to be Job's vindicator but first he brings him into a right state of mind now our first point is that the glory of God illuminates a true knowledge of ourselves God appears God speaks and that changes everything and it's important for you to recognize as well that you encounter the living word of god in the written word of god it is there that you perceive and see the glory of god second corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 you behold The glory of the Lord. You look into the mirror of the word. You behold the glory of the Lord. And the glory of God illuminates a true knowledge of ourselves. And we want to think specifically about this. Let's go to the next slide. By this simple question, who is this? Who is this, the Lord says. He draws a strong distinction between the glory and majesty of his person and the littleness and finitude of Job. Who is this that speaks so presumptuously? Now listen, if I had, if I had preached the whole book of Job here, you'd know how we honor him in the same way that God has honored him. But in the process of his trial, in the duration of his affliction, his faith begins to waver under the oppression and temptation of his friends who suggest that he's hiding some sin. Job, in his defense of his innocence, listen, in his defense of his innocence, and he is innocent, okay, he becomes self-righteous. And he accuses God of injustice. And so uh, God is going to correct that. Job is going to repent of it. And so God says to him, Who is this? Is this Job? Is this a man who speaks so presumptuously, so carelessly, so irreverently? A weak, foolish, fallen, ignorant creature? You know, Solomon reminds us of the importance of remembering that we are men and not God. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 2, Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore let your words be few. It seems that sometimes... There are people who may even get a little thrill out speaking of God, speaking of Christ in ways that are irreverent or perhaps speaking of Him or against Him because they feel He has done them some wrong. But this is sin. And God would have us reverence Himself and hold Him in honor even when we do not understand his work that he is doing in our lives now the lord the word of god the second person of the trinity is teaching job who he is as a man by shining the light of his greatness on his smallness and sinfulness the lord confronts the foolishness of interpreting god's plan by his limited perception And we cannot have a right knowledge of ourselves unless we first have a knowledge of who God is. This is the way John Calvin begins uh, his Institutes. He says, For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is in all of us, unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity." And we'll never be convinced of our own wickedness as long as we measure ourselves by others or by our own opinion. It is only when we stand humbly in the presence of God, in the presence of that revelation of God, given through the living word, in the written word, that we find the true measure of ourselves. Isaiah 6, the prophet sees a vision of the Lord high and lifted up in His holiness. And only then is His response, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In Exodus 3, and we know, right? Isaiah 6 is a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw the Lord high and lifted up. It's affirmed in John chapter 12. In Exodus 3, Moses stands before the Lord at the burning bush. Once more, it's the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to him, the second person of the Trinity speaking out of the bush. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. He is humbled. Luke 5, 8, when Simon Peter saw the miracle that Jesus did with the fish, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, it is only when we see the glory of God that who we really are is exposed. I want to read a passage to you from James. Some of you probably already had it in your mind. But James 1 and verse 22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Did you see that? He forgets. What he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law. The law of liberty. And perseveres. Being no hearer who forgets. But a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. You see as you come to the word of God. It is there that you see the glory of God. If you neglect the grace of the Word of God, you will not see yourself as you truly are. It is by coming to God in His Word, encountering Christ in His Word. Listen, this is the Word of Christ. You remember Colossians, "...let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly." The Word of Christ is not just the words in red in the Gospel. It is the whole Bible... And as you encounter Christ in His Word, you're exposed to His glory. As you persevere in looking into the mirror of the Word of God and the glory of God, then you are going to be exposed for the the needs, the sins, the failures. But God is going to do that in order not to condemn you because He has given you justification in Christ. He is doing that in order to transform you. In order to change you from glory to glory, from grace to grace, into the very image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're to persevere there in the word. One of the main reasons we draw wrong conclusions about life is our failure to see who we are before God. Now, we were created in His image. That is our dignity. We were created as moral agents. We were given a conscience, a knowledge of the goodness and greatness of God. But in our depravity, we suppress the truth of God. We've corrupted the image of God. We offer our minds and bodies to all kinds of wickedness. Redemption is the reversal of this. It is reversed, as I mentioned, through regeneration, that renovation of our whole nature so that we might be like the Lord Jesus Christ and through the ongoing work of sanctification as God separates us unto himself using his word and using trials in order to teach us our sins and our need of repentance and to teach us his glory and to reflect his glory in us. That brings us to the second point. The counsel of God is his wise and good providence over all of life. So we looked at who is this, and now we're considering this word, counsel. Who is this that darkens counsel? The counsel of God. So what is the counsel of God? Let's go to the next slide. In Deuteronomy 32, 28, Moses anticipates the waywardness of the children of Israel, and he describes them as a nation void of counsel. And why does he do that? Because they refuse to follow the plan and purposes of God. They are a nation void of counsel because they fail, they refuse. To follow the plan and purposes of God. So counsel in this context means the plan and purpose of God. Or the plans and purposes of God. In Proverbs this word is often used. Fools reject God's counsel to their own detriment. Proverbs 1.25 and 30. But he who listens to God's counsel is a wise man. Proverbs twelve. And verse 15, in Proverbs 19, 20-21, we learn that the counsel of the Lord will stand. That means that His plans, His purposes cannot be frustrated and they will not be overturned. But that is in contrast to our counsel and the plans of a man's heart. You remember that? Many are the plans of a man's heart, but the Lord directs His way. God's counsel stands. So the meaning of this word counsel is the plans and purposes of God. In Isaiah 9, 6, this word is actually assigned as a title of the Messiah because he is the wonderful counselor. And as the wonderful counselor, he is the one who performs and accomplishes the plans and purposes of God. God the Father directed in creation, but it was the Son of God who accomplished the creative work. And it was the Spirit of God who applied it. You know, The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, imparting life to it, so that at the Word of God, Christ Himself, at the Word, when God said, let there be, suddenly it it was brought to life. And that's compared, in fact, to the Gospel in Ephesians uh, chapter 5. That as God who called the light out of darkness, so he has done with you. And so it is Christ who is the one who accomplishes the plan of God. In Isaiah 9.6, he's called the wonderful counselor. He mediates to us the purposes and plans of God as he did to Job. He is the wisdom of God's counsel. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us the wisdom of God. And he says in Colossians that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Job 38.2's counsel means the wise and good plan of God. The wise and good plan of God. The wisdom of his sovereign providence. Counsel is the opposite of being arbitrary, uh, of being capricious. God is not arbitrary or capricious. You know, A.W. Tozer, he says, do you ever doodle? I was listening to some of his few sermons that are on tape. And he, he said, do you ever doodle? You know what doodling is? You know, you're on the phone and you're listening to somebody, but you're drawing a little stick man you're, you're drawing something, you know, there, just kind of doodling. It's really meaningless, and you just kind of toss it aside afterwards. And Tozer said, God never doodles. God never doodles. He always is at work performing his good and wise plan. And so it is here. So, counsel means the wise and good plan of God. Let's go to the next slide, which brings us to number three. To darken God's counsel means to misinterpret his good and wise providence. So this is our third point. Because he says that, that Job has darkened his counsel. And to darken God's counsel, his good and wise plan <clears throat> means to miss and misinterpret his good and wise providence. It's interesting how many times we could read something like that. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge and not really understand exactly what we have read? Isn't it true? And so counsel, let's go to the next slide. Counsel is nothing less than God's plan, full of purpose and goodness and wisdom. But God darkens this counsel. What does that mean? Job distorts God's good plan by judging it falsely, by questioning God's wisdom, by questioning His goodness, by questioning His justice. And incidentally, let me just say this. If you study the word justice in the book of Job, it does not mean that that God immediately rights all wrongs. That as soon as a person sins, then God brings punishment upon them or that they appear in a heavenly court. It doesn't mean that really anywhere in Scripture. It does mean, though, God's justice means that He will do what is right He will judge all work, uh, the works of man. He will punish the guilty. He will not clear the guilty. He will bless the, the righteous. And so when we think of justice in the book of Job, it means God's sovereign wisdom by which he will work all things out in the end for his glory and our good. God's wisdom by which He will finally produce justice so that there will never be a single wrong that was not addressed. There will not be a a single suffering that is not significant and important and and in fact produced glory for God that in eternity will produce joy and blessing. That despite the sinfulness of men, the cursed world we live in, the wickedness of Satan and his demons, and the influence of ungodliness that is everywhere in this world, in spite of those things, listen, God is going to bring it all to a good conclusion, a just conclusion. And that's what justice means in the book of Job. But Job, in the midst of his suffering, he couldn't see it. And so he questions God's wisdom and his goodness and his justice. But when God says uh, that he was distorting his counsel, he, he means that Job, through his suffering, was misinterpreting the wisdom and plan of God. His suffering was founded on God's goodness. It was motivated by God's wisdom. And so Job had become guilty of misrepresenting this plan as being arbitrary, as being unjust. The form of the word here, darken, is a participle. It implies that down to the very end of his speaking, down to the very final way that uh, we find Job uh, listening in, in defiant silence to Elihu, he maintained his opinion That God was not doing right by him. He continued to misinterpret the uh, the plan of God. Now how does Job misinterpret the plan of God? Well he tells us by words without knowledge. Words without knowledge. That is ideas and concepts and conclusions that were void of God's revealed will. Ideas and conclusions that were void of God's revealed will. God's revelation of himself. Words without knowledge is our own clever and mutable imaginations about what God is like and what God is doing that leads us into superstition and heresy. Warren Wiersbe says this, Job thought he knew about God, but he didn't realize how much he didn't know about God. Knowledge of our own ignorance is the first step toward true wisdom. And you remember the song by William Cooper, who suffered so horribly with depression, attempted suicide a number of times, but he was a Christian. He said, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. But it's easy for us to misinterpret God's hand of providence. Because we can't see what he sees. So let me illustrate it for you this way. Life is like a billion-piece puzzle. Okay? It's like a billion-piece puzzle. Now, there are probably some puzzle masters in here. And for you, it's nothing to pull down a thousand-piece puzzle and work on that and put it together. And maybe you've even done big. I don't actually, I think I've ever seen bigger than a thousand. We've done a few of them in our lives. What do you do with them after that, right? We stack them on top of the freezer, you know, (laughs) they're stacked up there. But uh, eventually I need the wood that they're sitting on, so I I throw them away. But life is more than a thousand-piece puzzle. You see, I can handle that. Life is like a billion-piece puzzle. And you, you are going to find that there are pieces that you can't put together. That there's pieces missing that you don't understand this circumstance. And what is going on in this, at this time in your life, it, it is beyond our ability to comprehend and to assimilate. But that is not your job. You see, God, is infinite in His understanding. He loves you with His infinite goodness. He has arranged all things in His sovereign wisdom. And our work is to trust Him, not to try to put together the billion-piece puzzle. You see, that is the source of our anxiety. How is God going to answer this prayer? How is He going to do this? Lord, here's the way I think You should do it, right? Right? We, we have our ideas of what God should do and how he should do. And if we pursue those ki- that kind of thinking, we're going to do exactly what Job did. We'll become bitter against God because he is not doing what we believe is the wisest and most just thing with our lives or with the lives of those we love. Right. Yeah. And so we, we cannot... And so you and I, what, what do we do? We darken the counsel of God by words without knowledge. Why is God so mean to me? Why doesn't life add up? I did the right thing and look where it got me. Following Christ is not worth it. I'm tired of persevering in this marriage. God wants me to be happy. I should just do what I want to do. Are those Are examples of wrong interpretations of life based on wrong interpretations or wrong understandings of God. Uh, So, our thoughts of God, our thoughts of God have to come from His revelation, not from our imagination. And such false thoughts leave us vulnerable to Satan. We become discouraged and we become more open to His lies. And his lies are are going to also have suggestions. Not only will he tell you that perhaps God doesn't exist, or he'll say to you that God is not good or God is not wise, but he also will suggest alternatives to God's wisdom, alternatives to the will of God revealed in the scripture. Here is a way of escape, he will say. And of course, all of his alternatives are sinful means of escape. And they are never really a means of escape, right? They always end up with greater bondage. Let's go to the next slide. And I want to uh, give you some applications. Now, the definition for discipleship here at Redeemer Church is our commitment to train believers in faithful application of the gospel. And as I was corresponding with Phil, he sent me this question How does the book of Job, and specifically Job 38, 1 and 2, inform the way that we should counsel one another? So I want to speak to that with uh, two basic points here. Let's go to the next slide. Our conversations, that is, between you, your husband and wife, between you children, one another, between believer to believer, our conversations must call one another to the perspective that sets God at the center of life. You see, often we have conversations about life that set God at the periphery, that put him at the outside of the circle. We have Lots of actors and participants that we talk about in the, the situation that is going on, in the circumstances, right? There are the doctors, and there are the family members, and, and there are the, the debtors and the creditors, and, and there are all of these people, and they are all have feature prominently in our discussion, in our conversation. But somehow, God is placed on the periphery. It's as though it was was only man and up to us to solve this problem. And God appears distant, uninvolved, helpless, ambivalent, passive. Listen, believers, when we do this, when we participate in conversations that do this, it is a subtle blasphemy against the Lord. We may not say it out loud, but we are actually calling into question his sovereignty, his wisdom, and his goodness. And so our conversations must call one another to the perspective that sets God supremely at the center of life. You know, for a thousand years, people interpreted the universe as though the earth were the center. This was the, the Conclusions of, of Ptolemy, the Egyptian, right, and and it certainly fit the appearance of things, right? There, there's the sun that goes oh, over there, yeah, yeah, went around us, <laughs> right, and uh, and as you look and you see the movement of the stars. We're still, they're moving, right, and and so they had the idea that the Earth was the center of the solar system, but of course. When Copernicus came along, he proved that what the church had believed, what scientists had believed was entirely false. That the earth wasn't at the center of the solar system. That the sun was at the center. That the earth actually went around the sun. This was a shocking revolution in people's thinking. Well, we have to help one another. Not to, walk, not to think by the appearance of things, but to walk by faith. Faith that sets God at the center. Now, when you converse with people, what you find is that, um, is that often there is a terrifying appearance that is associated with suffering. I'm going to lose my job. The doctor says it's cancer. Our child is sick. Our child walked away from God. Whatever it may be, okay? Terrifying. Suffering and trials appear very terrifying to us. And pleasant things, right? They appear very flattering to us. Uh, and, And we would want all of this that has that looks like things would be easy and good and and, uh, wonderful for us and circumstantially would be preferable to us. But God, in his wisdom, he wants us to walk by faith. Faith pulls the flattering appearance away from the ease of life that we desire so much. And it pulls the terrifying appearance away from the trials of life, and shows us that God is working good. If you read Hebrews chapter 12, and how he talks about how God works through our suffering, that we are partakers of his discipline, that no chastening for the present seemeth joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, it yields the fruit of holiness to those that are exercised by it. And that that we are to not to look at the things that are seen, but the things which are unseen. And In order to do that, we need one another's help. We have to talk to one another. You see, often we have such a little piece of information that it's easy for us to draw a wrong conclusion. Right? For example... Not only the billion-piece puzzle, but suppose I, I showed you a, a, a movie, but you could only watch one millisecond, okay? And then after I showed you the millisecond, I said, now, would you please explain the plot to me? And you said, well, I don't. I, can, I can't do that. Well, exactly. You see, God's, God understands the whole picture. You and I, we only see the little millisecond. And and in order for us not to be discouraged, we have to talk to one another about our experiences in life so that in such a way that it draws us back to a God-centeredness. I I just suggest a few things to you. Uh, First, is that you represent God well in your conversations by listening compassionately. Listening compassionately. Job's friends did not do that. Uh, They listened, but it was not without compassion. They were drawing false conclusions all along. But we need to listen, compassion, especially when people are going through trials. And then ask questions that lead back to God. See, this is a good way to draw that conversation away from just the appearance and back to the reality of who God is, set him at the center. Ask questions that lead back to God. What do you think God is teaching you about himself? Do you think there's any areas uh, in your life where God is especially working to help you uh, trust him more? By, by asking those kinds of questions, you know, then, then we're helping us together. We're helping our brothers and sisters not to, to give in to the appearance of things and believe that we're at the center, but to see God at the center right. of them. And then remind each other of God's promises in Christ. See, is another way that we enable each other to walk by faith. So, discipleship is another way of speaking of encouragement that believers offer to one another. Encouragement that helps your brother or your sister, your wife or your husband want to put their one foot in front of the other again want to continue to trust God, want to persevere in doing what is right and not give in to the temptations. So remind each other of God's promises in Christ. You remind, them, remind one another that you're forgiven in Christ. So in 1 John chapter 2, John says, little children, I write these things to you because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. He reminds them of that promise that you are forgiven. Sometimes, you know, in circumstance, we think, God, oh, he must be punishing me for my past sins. But this is absolutely false. Christ has taken my past sins, right? He's forgiven me. So remind each other that God can give us peace in the storm, right? Jesus said, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives. Uh, don't be afraid. He, so he gives us his peace. He gives us his joy. Romans, uh, excuse me, Romans, uh, oh, I could Romans 5, but um, I'm thinking of John 15. John 15, when he says, uh, I'm speaking these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, that's, that's a promise. of the the gospel in Christ. And so by reminding each other that we have peace in Christ, that we have joy in Christ, it lifts our spirits away from the weight of those things that are beyond our control, things that we cannot handle, things like sickness and disease and disaster as happened in the life of Job. And then maybe one other If you pray, to pray with a believer. You know, when someone comes and talks to you, and often what happens is this need appears in a complaint, okay? There'll be a complaint. My son did this, and, you know, there's frustration there, perhaps anger that is clear. There is some complaint about I can't believe what our government is doing, right? We make some complaint. One of the ways that you can help each other trust God is to simply pray together and say, why don't we pray about that? Because that brings us back to a God-centeredness. And so, you know, after a service like this, as you're talking, I, I don't think it should be uncommon at all. I've told our people to have many little prayer groups going on where a conversation about something leads to a prayer regarding that thing, and then we bring it to the Lord and pray for a brother or sister. And by doing so, we disciple one another. Paul Tripp says, God's focus is redemptive, eternal, and spiritual. To the degree that my focus is individual, temporal, and physical, I am at cross purposes with God. We want heaven now. But now is the time of suffering and struggle. Our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to live in the light of the coming kingdom. You know, we, we want to go back and get Eden, right? And, and have all the joys of Eden. That's not going to happen. Now is the suffering time. Now is the time of perseverance. Now is the time of endurance. Now is the time of trial. Now is the time of warfare. Someday will be the reigning time. The, 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 the time when the curse is lifted, when the devil is, is cast into hell and, and the lake of fire, when God reigns and, and Christ rules and all has been subjugated to him at his footstool. But until that day, we have to help each other to keep our focus on the eternal. We provoke one another to love and good works. Let's go one more slide. It's 11.20, how am I doing? Great. Uh, uh, (laughs) Am I over? (laughs) In suffering, we are tempted to doubt the goodness and wisdom of God. Let me just say this. Because discipleship especially has to happen when people are hurting. So when we face discouragement and suffering, we are tempted to question the goodness of God. But we must help one another to cling tenaciously to the perspective that God is wise and loving by reminding each other of the gospel. In other words, not only do you need to watch over your own heart, we speak of preaching the gospel to ourselves, but we need to watch over one another's hearts. And especially when a person, you know they're going through some kind of trial. A lot of times... We we allow ourselves to be so self-centered, so selfish, that although we may have prayed occasionally, although we may have communicated a little, mostly the suffering saint is out of our mind. But as Christians, we cannot allow that to happen. We need to keep ourselves aware and conscious that not only are they in a trial, But they're also in a significant position of temptation. That it is often through trials that Satan will use the occasion in order to tempt us. It is in those times that our hearts can become hard. You know, not every trial uh, strengthens a, a Christian. It should. But sometimes we can become discouraged, our focus becomes so downward, we lose our perspective, and, and we start to spiral out of control. You may drop out of church, you may stop your reading of scripture, you may, the song in your heart may be gone, the peace that passes understanding is no longer in your experience, and, and you don't even know how to get it back. And that is when brothers and sisters need to surround and love and stay in touch and encourage and help and hold this person up. That's when the handwritten note that says, I love you and I'm praying for you makes such a difference. So we need to watch over one another's hearts, especially in our times of trial. And, And we need to remind one another that the cross is the model, okay, that there is suffering and glory. And as Christ suffered and entered into his glory, so we also must enter the kingdom of God through much tribulation. And so suffering is part of God's work and it's part of the proving of his process. And it also it also is a continual demonstration of the adequacy of the cross of Christ to raise us up, to to resurrect us out of the the death and sorrow and sadness of sin and the curse and to give up meaning and significance to our life through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And a little while we're going to celebrate communion, It, it is through the process of remembering the Lord remembering communion, remembering Christ, that our focus is, is lifted up. And so we, we minister to one another. It's easy for us to want to escape. We deceive ourselves that we, by thinking that we can find refuge from the sorrows and pain of life in anything else but God. Nothing. Not sex, not money, Not entertainment, not video games, not drugs, not drinking. Nothing provides an escape from the sorrow of life. It only increases the sorrow. Only the gospel saves us. Only Christ delivers us. And so instead of trying to escape by sinful choices, we have to move redemptively forward. And that often requires, yes, God intends it, a community standing with us, holding us up, encouraging us, strengthening us to persevere in righteousness. Let's go to the last slide. I mentioned paradise lost. This is a a picture drawn by a young Canadian believer, an artist. Her name is Kristen B. And she drew this after reading Paradise Lost for the first time. They say a picture is worth a thousand words, and I think this is true here. You notice there in the center is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you can tell that this is a picture that uh, took place after the fall. Adam and Eve have fallen from God. And not only are they estranged from God, but you notice how they're sitting on either side of the tree. They're estranged from one another as well. And shame has overwhelmed them. And on the ground, you'll notice that there are pieces of fruit. And, um, you know, the devil, he said, eat this and you'll be like gods." And perhaps it was this way. It's certainly the way Kristen has... Um, presented it, that they, they took one bite of the fruit and no, that didn't do it. And another bite and threw, and they, they're scattered everywhere. All these bites of fruit that did not give them yeah. the help that they needed. The, the false promises of this world that failed them all together. You notice also that in the the margins of the picture, that there are angels that are watching. The emphasis is that this is a cosmic event that brings the curse and death and sorrow. And there's Satan himself at the bottom. See, the serpent. And he's the deceiver and the liar. And Where is he looking? You know, he's looking, he's looking at you. But notice finally at the top of the piece. You see there the cross of Christ. His outstretched arms. Transcending the ruin and the misery. And embracing His lost people. Embracing them with the grace of the gospel. And brothers and sisters, Christ has... Reached out upon the cross to embrace this cursed, fallen, sorrow filled world. And he is at work through it all to to bring us to himself, to, to draw us to himself. And as believers together, as the body of Christ, our responsibility is to counsel one another look to the cross, look to Christ. In Him is all the sufficiency that we need. Amen.